Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16 verses 13 through 14. The word of God speaks to us. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks Arden. Hey, good morning guys. It's great to be with you this morning. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here so good to be with you this morning. Thanks for braving the cold weather uh, to, to get out with us today. Uh, hey, I'm really excited about today. We've got a lot of ground and a lot of different things to cover. But before we get into that, just a couple of things that I want to say. The first is, man, I know that some of you are here and you're new and we're coming from different places. Uh, some of us have been walking with Jesus for years and years. Others of us are not really sure what we think about church or Christianity or whatever. And so I just want to say, wherever you find yourself today, we're honored by your presence. We love that you're with us. We don't have all the answers, but we want to walk with you as you wrestle with the claims of, of Jesus. So thanks for being with us today. It's good to have you. And then I just have some quick family business that I want to get into before we start our sermon. Um, the first is this. So <clears throat> what Sean said just a minute ago about the way that we've structured our finances as a church is exactly right. We, uh, we budget very, very little uh, for our facilities, and we budget mainly for ministry and mission and church planting and church strengthening. So if you look at kind of our budget as a covenant member, if you've got questions about that, we can sit down and show you kind of how we break things down, but it goes towards our values and our priorities, which are ministry in the city, caring for the poor, uh, partnering with other churches, and planting those churches. And so what that means is that our facility, as you've noticed, this uh, what used to be a 24-7 fitness club that still smells like sweat from time to time, uh, will never look like the building across the street, okay? <laughs> it's never going to look like that. And it's a sad reminder to me every time I drive into the office, like, that's beautiful. And there's our tin can of a building. Um, but I'm grateful for what God's provided. He's given us a place in the city. And while we're never going to have a beautiful cathedral like that, uh, we, we really do want to take care of it. We really do want to steward what God has given us well. And that's why you've seen over time we try to make it more hospitable, more safe for our kids. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a generous covenant member family in our church give $12,000 above and beyond their, their general giving because they have kids and they want our kids' ministry to be better, to be safer, to be more hospitable. So they talked with us and they said, hey, what do you need? They wrote us a check for $12,000 so that we could do the changes that we've done out there with the glass and making it a little bit more secure and hopefully more hospitable. But friends, can I just be honest with you? And by the way, if you're not a member, ignore this. But if, if Frontline's your home and you're a member here, um, we really need about $12,000 more dollars 
to make some adjustments and changes and to continue some of the projects that we've started. So uh, we need some stuff for our cafe. We need some stuff for our kids' classrooms. If, if, if our kids uh, had the awareness and the vocabulary to say it, they would be telling you on the way home, the toys in the kids' classroom are trash and nothing in there. It's like all hand-me-down from hand-me-down from hand-me-downs. And so, and that's like no lie. We've just, we're trying to make it work. We're trying to fit with what we have. So I'm just asking some of you, uh, would you consider throwing in with this $12,000? We're actually trying to make some space for our growing team uh, here at Frontline South. Our staff team has never had a great set of offices. And so we're trying to make some adjustments and changes there. So $12,000 is the ask for you. We hardly ever do this. You know that if you've been around for a long time. Some of you can write a check today for $12,000. Some of you could write a check for $50 bucks or $100. Bucks. So building project, that's how you would classify this, building project. Uh, and then you can also give online. You just need to let us know that you're throwing in on the building project. And I just want to say, before I'm done with my little spiel here, um, don't take from your general giving to give to the building project. That's like robbing Peter to pay Paul, which, did that ever happen? Did, did like Were they constantly robbing each other as apostles? I don't know. Wherever that statement came, we, we need the general giving to stay as it is, but this is an above and beyond ask so that we can get to $12,000. Sound good? You know, three of you are like, yes, I will consider giving a dollar. Uh, the rest of you are like, oh, the church always talks about money, blah, 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 right? I get it. I get it. We don't always talk about money, but I get the, I get the, uh, the weirdness there. So $12,000, that's what we need. All right. Hey, today is going to be really, really hopefully fun and helpful and different uh, we are pausing in some sense our series on 1 Corinthians to land and sit in a, a verse or two that Paul says in chapter 16 where he specifically pauses his letter to address the men. And it was something that the men in his church and that church at the time and their culture needed to hear. And we would make the case that men in our own culture today need to hear some of the same things. And so we're gonna take the next three weeks as a church to just slowly pause and speak to men and talk about what it is to have masculine virtue, that God, by his grace, might cultivate that in our church. And we'll get into the why of that and why we're doing this on Sundays all in just a minute. But I just want to pause and pray, and I want to ask you to pray for me, and I want you to pray that the Lord would shape you today and form you today by his word. So, Father, we're grateful to sit together, to learn together, to even be corrected And I just confess, so much of the world is in me. So much of the world's vision is in my heart. And I want your kingdom and your truth to be in my heart. So where I need correction today and where we need it, we just invite you. Would you correct us? Would you give us uh, humble hearts, teachable hearts? I pray already for the men and women in the room who are offended, even at the thought of confessing sins against the other gender. God, would you meet us and give us humility? Would you allow us to learn what it looks like to really own sin and confess sin? And, and not even, maybe we don't feel like we've done those specific things, but where you've invited your people in the Old Testament to confess the sins of their fathers and mothers, where we need to just stand in that moment of confessing sin as a culture. So today, we want all of it. We want confession. We want assurance. We want shaping. We want you to form us. I pray that you would help us and give the brothers in the room a vision of masculine virtue and give the sisters in the room courage and humility to come alongside of their brothers and help. I need you. pray that you would help me today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2018, 
a video of a woman on a subway dumping bleach on men's pants went viral. Maybe you saw this video, maybe you didn't, but essentially what she was doing was protesting men who take up too much space on subways or trains or airplanes by doing something that she called manspreading. I didn't know that was a thing, but that was a thing, right? So she's protesting these men pouring bleach on their pants as a way to protest these men who just take up too much space. Now, two things happened when this video uh, posted on YouTube. It went almost instantly viral and was shared and retweeted and posted all over the internet millions and millions of times before it was eventually taken down for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. But it had two different reactions. Uh, on the far left, the reaction was one of uh, humor. Haha, that's hilarious that she would do that. And also one of like, you go girl, get them. Show those men uh, how much space that they do take up. And it's about time that we fight against manspreading in our culture. That was one of the reactions on the far left. And then on the far right, it was seen as the polar opposite. It was seen as an act of evil. And in some instances, there were even men who were calling for violent acts to be done to her for retribution. How dare she do what she did? Someone should be doing horrible things to her in response. Regardless, there were tensions and resentment and anger that were cultivated and bubbled up between men and between women as a result of this video and those that saw it. Now, here's what's crazy. What's really bizarre is that not long after the video went viral, it was removed because it was found out and exposed that the entire video was totally fake. It was all staged. Uh, the people in the subway and the woman herself were paid actors to do it, and the entire video was staged actually by the Russian Kremlin as a part of their disinformation campaign against the West. Now, if you don't know anything about the way that disinformation campaigns work, and this is not just true of Russia, this is true of probably almost any global superpower, is that the idea behind a disinformation campaign is that you can actually identify tensions that already exist in the West, you can identify problems that are already present, and then you make those problems worse. You throw fuel on the fire and gasoline on the fire, and you stoke the flame of what's already tension and resentment and anger so that you can destabilize the West from the inside out. And in effect, you make them less of a global superpower to reckon with if you can make sure that there's enough infighting inside of the country themselves. Now, here's why I share that with you, um, not because I care about conspiracy theories. Please, just as a side note, don't send me your conspiracy theories. I, I don't want emails about it. I, I don't care about your conspiracy theory. I don't want to hear about it. Don't text me about it. Just find somebody else that cares. I don't want to know. So that's not why I'm sharing this, is so that you think that I'm some like weird conspiracy guy. The, the other thing I'm not trying to do is just pick on Russia, which I know is probably popular right now. I, I don't even care about that right now. Like I'm trying to make a point about disinformation campaigns, and here's what I want you to realize. What I want you to realize is that you and I live inside of a fallen world that since the beginning of the creation of Adam and Eve, we have a real enemy who is hell-bent on a disinformation campaign against God and against humanity. That one of the things that, that has been going on in our world, one of the things that behind ideas and thoughts and cultural beliefs and stuff out there is actually the enemy energizing and stirring up lies about God and lies about men and lies about women so that he can actually destabilize us from the inside out. 
And much of what fuels modern-day radical feminism, and I'm going to define that in just a minute, and much of what fuels modern-day secular men's movements, and I'll define that in just a minute, are actually being stoked and energized by spiritual forces of darkness who want nothing more than more antagonism against God and more antagonism against other humans. So whether you realize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, there's a war raging all around us to seek or to, to seeking to feel hatred and jealousy and animosity specifically between men and women and to erase the beautiful God-given differences between the masculine and the feminine. And just like there are Americans who are reposting that video and getting energized and either celebrating or really frustrated by that video, there's people today in the church, whether they realize it or not, who are actually getting co-opted by the enemy's disinformation campaign about men and about women. And much of how they view that is more fueled by culture and by the enemy's disinformation campaign than by the truth and beauty of the word of God. And so we actually have a need to pause and to talk about this. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to start by defining terms because I know that all of us are carrying terms in the room with us and we use certain words as a positive and other people use those same words as a negative. And so what I want to do is I want to start with a few words in a positive light that I want to define and then move to a couple of words that I want to define in a more negative light. So positively speaking, when I use the phrase masculinity, I'm describing the God-given essence, uniqueness, qualities and characteristics of being a man that reflect certain aspects of God himself, right? I'm not talking about what culture says masculinity is. I'm talking about what the word of God describes masculinity as. So listen, biblical masculinity has nothing to do with driving a truck or drinking beer or liking MMA. You may love those things or hate those things. It doesn't make you more or less of a man. And to my knowledge, Jesus preferred to walk. He preferred wine over beer. And the only physical altercation that he had did not involve Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It was him addressing the religious leaders in the temple with a whip. And so don't define men and masculinity by what culture defines it as, because that ebbs and flows and changes from time and place. Use the word of God as your standard, and I'm using the word masculinity in the positive. Likewise, when I use the word femininity, I'm describing the God-given essence, uniqueness, qualities, and characteristics of being a woman that reflect certain aspects of God himself. Like men, women were created, and there's certain things that women express and exhibit in their lives in their very essence that point us directly back to God that otherwise we would not have if we lived in a genderless world or with only men. But this is a beautiful gift. So I'm not describing femininity in terms of 1950s American ideals and values and what we think femininity might be in our culture. Or what, because again, that changes in time and place. I'm talking about holding up the word of God and digging in to figure out how does God define the beauty of what femininity is? I'm using these two words in the positive. Now, in the negative, I'm using two different words. Misogyny, a lack of concern for or dislike of or ingrained prejudice against women. I want you to hear me. If you have in your bones a disinterest in the welfare of women, if you have inside of your mind or your heart an ingrained prejudice or dislike of women, I'm saying that that's being inspired by this disinformation campaign that the enemy has unleashed on our world, not the vision that God has offered us in Scripture. 
Misogyny is a distortion of the good that God has made. It's when something beautiful gets bent and disordered and broken, and it profoundly destroys and disrupts the good that God intended for men to be. Likewise, a negative term that I'm using, radical feminism. Now, I know that you can use the word feminism in the positive. I'm describing something that's other than and talking about radical feminism, which is an ideology that inherently sees all masculinity as toxic and seeks to erase any and all gender differences between the masculine and the feminine. Right, So there's been a lot of good that's been done by women fighting for women's rights. For sure, we could talk about that all day, but this is not the right sermon for it. There's too much to get into. I've got to be thoughtful about what I say and what I don't say. I'm talking about radical feminism as a profound negative. I'm saying, as one feminist scholar described, uh, she said, they, they asked her, they said, uh, can you think of when masculinity might not be toxic and might be healthy. And her response back was, healthy masculinity is an oxymoron like healthy cancer. In other words, there's no vision of masculinity as a net positive. And I'm saying if that's your ideology, you're actually being inspired by the disinformation campaign of the enemy and not by the word of God. Another feminist scholar said this, women need men like fish need bicycles. So if that's your approach, then what you've done is effectively written off half of the human race, and you're not even seeing anything redeemable or good about men. And I'm saying that ideology is dangerous, it's sinful, and it's wrong, like misogyny, and it needs to be corrected and repented of to get us into a better vision of God's heart for men and women. So yes, can men be bad? Absolutely, they can disorder their, 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 uh, their God-given strength. Can women be bad? Yes, absolutely, they can get disordered in all sorts of ways too. But masculinity and femininity are gifts and good virtues that you and I should aspire into as men and as women. Now, why do this? Why do a series like this on a Sunday morning in the presence of women? Why not just do like a men's event like we did recently and keep the conversation out of our Sunday gathering? It's profoundly vulnerable for us to do this in a setting like this, isn't it? Like, I feel it as a preacher in this moment and one of your pastors. It's vulnerable for me to stand up and talk for three weeks about men. It's vulnerable for you as men and women to be in the presence of each other hearing this stuff. So why do it? Well, let me just briefly give you a couple of reasons, and then I promise we'll jump in. Uh, Some of you are like, we haven't jumped in yet? My gosh. No, I know. I know, there's a lot that we need to look at. Um, So let me just give you a few reasons why we're talking about this topic and this moment in this context. Number one, men in our current cultural moment are falling behind women and floundering in many discernible categories. Now, I'm not saying that women aren't floundering in other categories or struggling or that, you know, everything is peachy and great if you're late. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that just based on the recent data that is out there, men are failing and falling behind women and floundering in many discernible categories. There's been a lot of work done by this, by a lot of people that are not Christians, that don't hold to a politically right or left perspective or just looking at the data. Let me just give you a few things to consider. In education, think about this. In 1972, men were, on average, 13% more likely to get a college degree than women. 13%. That's a big gender gap between men and women in 1972. That was corrected and adjusted, praise be to God. But today, think about this, 
women are 15% more likely to get a college degree than men. Or to say it a little bit more clearly, there's a bigger gender gap among men today than there was among women in the 70s. In the university level, it's three women for every two men. Now, I'm not disparaging women by making that comment. I'm just trying to make the case that if you care about equality, then if you look at the education system, what we're currently experiencing for a host of complicated reasons is not actually equality. In the workforce, among men with only a high school education, one in three is out of the labor force. One in three men are jobless. 69% of the homeless population are men. 93% of the prison system consists of men for a host of reasons that we, get, we can get into. And mental health and social health, mortality from drug overdose, suicides, and alcohol-related illnesses, known as deaths of despair, are among three times higher with men than they are with women. Suicide now is the single biggest killer of men under the age of 45. Men are three and a half times more likely to commit suicide than women. Now again, I'm not disparaging women by those comments. I'm just stating data that we need to look at together and say something is going wrong with our boys and with our men. And if we care at all about half of the population of planet Earth, we should care about this Issue. And that's just from a not even Christian perspective, just a general perspective, right? Men need help. Number two, in the West, there's a long term effort underway to erase masculinity altogether. The old scripts about men as being essential to society, as being valuable, as being good, as their strength being seen as a gift to humanity, has been totally blown up, torn down, and replaced with a new cultural script that sees masculinity itself as inherently toxic. Now, friends, I just want you to think about this with me. When susceptible men, and especially our young boys, hear a message that is one of toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity all the time, one that's seen that you are the very problem, that you walking into a room and the strength that you carry and who you are and everything about you is wrong and you need to repent culturally of all those things and embrace what we now value if you're gonna be accepted and forgiven by our culture. What happens to young boys and susceptible men when they hear that message day in and day out from our culture? Well, a few things. Either they reject their God-given masculine nature and they abdicate their God-given roles and responsibilities, and you see this play out in ways where young men lack drive and ambition and desire to even try, And instead of being a part of a real team and building something actual in the world and actually having a a real uh, person that they can commit themselves to in marriage, what's happening is they go to porn and they live in these faux love relationships with unreal women, or they go to video games where they live in these faux adventure and team worlds where you're not actually building anything or creating anything or doing anything of eternal value whatsoever, or you just kind of have this malaise, this quiet sadness that plays out where there's no drive, there's no ambition. You don't even know why you're here or what you're doing. And the amount of men in our world that feel that or experience that or are living in that is tragic. So that's one reaction. The other reaction is that they rise up in hatred and anger and they seek out some place to belong, an identity to embrace, a cause to fight for. And this is how otherwise normal boys in the West have gone on in some instances to join up with ISIS or the alt-right 
or gang violence in the inner city or what have you, because it's like, I want a, a, a team. I want to belong. I want an identity. I want to fight for something. And, and I'm sick of always being told that I'm the problem. And so they actually become the very problem that they're being told that they are. And that's not to put them off the hook. That's just to say there is a crisis that needs to be addressed. And then finally, number three, men need women and women need men. That's why we're talking about this on a Sunday morning, because men need women. Genesis 2 tells us that it is not good for man to be alone. And that's not primarily or almost at all a verse about marriage. That is a verse about the beauty and gift that women are to our world. Can you imagine a world without women? Uh, read Lord of the Flies, and it'll give you a perfect example <laughs> of world, a world without women. We'll strip down naked and kill each other. Like, it's just, it's a bad world. I don't want to live in that world. Have you noticed this? That if a group of boys or men are sitting around a table and a woman walks in the room, it's almost like her very presence instantly makes us better and curbs the worst parts about us. I just want to say, brothers, we need the ladies in this room like crazy. We need their prayers. We need their support. We need their help. We need their blessing. We don't need their permission to do what God has called us to do as men. But it sure would help if we had their blessing and their prayers and their support, right? We need the gift of women. In fact, so much of masculinity is aimed at, it's directed at the blessing and the benefit of women. And so I want you to hear this as men in the presence of women so that we can be called up together to the right vision of what God has wired us for. But also, women need men. And if that's controversial to you and you're a follower of Jesus, I don't even know what to do with you. I don't know where to start. I don't even know how to. If it's controversial for me to say that women need men, I want to say that you're kind of off a little bit as a follower of Jesus, that actually women need the blessing and the benefit that men are in our world. Men are not a moot point. God made them and placed them on this planet because they matter and they have a role to play, and they're significant, and they're important. And so ladies, please don't buy into the cultural lie that women are the same as or interchangeable with men, thereby making men irrelevant. You're equal to men and value, worth, and dignity, but you are not the same as men. And your difference and their difference is beautiful. It's a gift, and we need to embrace both of those. So over the next few weeks, ladies, I want to invite you to pray for us. Pray for your brothers, your sons, your fathers, your husbands, your friends that are men. Pray for them because there is a war happening in our world that's being energized and empowered by spiritual forces of darkness to stir up disinformation campaigns left and right. Now, one final pastoral caveat. Don't buy into the lie that to hold up one beautiful thing is to snub and push down another beautiful thing. Some of you are like, well, where's the thing on women? Don't think that because we're talking to men that somehow we're dishonoring women or to pause and talk to women, we're dishonoring men. We saw this with marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Don't buy into the lie just because your hobby horse isn't getting talked about at this specific time that somehow the other things don't matter or don't have any value. I love these words from G.K. Chesterton in a poem called Comparisons. He says, if I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. Men and women are gifts. We did a seven-week series back in 2016 on feminine strength that the world needs. 
We could talk for days about the gift that women are, the strength that they offer to our world, the blessing that they are, and you ladies matter. So don't hear anything that I'm saying today as contrary or shutting that down, amen? We're just talking to men for three weeks about something that very, very, very matters and is pertinent. So with that in mind, let's break apart this verse a little bit. And we're gonna do this differently because normally we preach verse by verse through sections. We're gonna take two verses and over the next three weeks unpack this verse and sort of use it as a biblical framework to go out beyond this text to look at other scriptures. So with that in mind, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This week, be watchful and stand firm. Next week, act like men and be strong. I'm sorry, this week, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Next week, act like men, be strong. And then in three weeks, let all that you do be done in love. This is a bit of a uh, overcharacterization, but you could actually distill the entire story of Scripture down to a story about two very different watchmen. Two very different watchmen. Both of these watchmen completely altered human history and the very cosmos themselves. The first watchman opened the floodgates of evil and suffering by abandoning his post, whereas the second watchman has begun the conquest of evil and the final defeat of evil by ultimately sacrificing everything, including himself, and protection of those on his watch. And both watchmen represent two very different archetypes, very different ways to live, and every single man in this room is gonna take more after one or more after the other. And so with that in mind, I wanna use this verse and kind of give you a biblical framework of these two watchmen. Here's the first watchman, Adam. Adam. Now, it's interesting in Genesis chapter one because God creates man and woman, male and female, as co-image bearers, co-rulers, that he doesn't create men over women or women over men, but he actually creates men and women side by side, shoulder to shoulder together and value, worth, and dignity to rule over the earth. So it's kings and queens, not just kings. It's kings and queens, and we are called to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply and to create and build things. God has given all men and women that mandate. But when you turn the page to Genesis chapter two, you get some very specific gender-related roles and essence and responsibility where God addresses first Adam and gives him kind of a framework of being a man in the world. And then later on in chapter two, he addresses Eve and gives her a biblical framework of being a woman in the world. We don't have time to get to uh, what Eve represents for women because we're primarily addressing the men today. So with that in mind, go to Genesis chapter two and look at the first, look at verses five through eight with me and think about why men? Why did God make men and not just a genderless society? Why men? Why are we here? When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Let's fast forward to verse 15, which is a massive verse for understanding why men. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Think about this. Two things that you need to know about Adam. Number one, Adam was a real man. But number two, he was a man who functioned as an archetype for all men from that point on in history. That Adam is basically holding up a design of God-given masculinity. And what we see God doing with Adam is teeing us off to something of why God put men on this earth. Adam was gifted a garden by God. Here's the garden. And then he was called to do two things with the garden, to work it and to keep it. Now, contrary to popular Christian misunderstandings and what I thought growing up, uh, I kind of thought Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, which is paradise, and all you do is sit around in a hammock, you sip mimosas all day, you just kind of lazily lounge around and watch the animals do their thing. I was like, how do we get back to, that sounds amazing, I want to get back to that, but that's not at all the actual picture that we have, that contrary to popular Christian misunderstanding, this garden actually needed the hands, the effort the sweat, and the labor of a man to cultivate the garden. Remember, the Garden of Eden was shalom. It was perfect. It was everything designed the way God wanted it. But that garden was supposed to expand over the known world so that the world could be covered with the blessing and the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. There were things in this garden that needed to be built Brush needed to be cleared. Animals needed to be named. Things needed to be arranged and brought into order. There needed to be culture that was created. And this is why God placed a man into this garden. Here's your gift of a garden. Now cultivate this garden. Richard Pratt says it this way. He says, the great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasure. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. Men, God made you and he placed you inside of whatever garden that he's placed you in. And your primary role in that garden is to cultivate it. And have you noticed, ladies, uh, to be a little bit general and maybe, you know, not always true every time, but generally speaking, men just have this obsession with cultivating the stuff in their life, finding things and wanting to get better at things and wanting to get better at those things. And like men will get a, a new hobby and then 47 hours of YouTube later and a bunch of purchases that they didn't need to make you know, that they're now having to explain to the, the ladies in their lives, like why they spent all this money on this new hobby. It's like, I want to get better at it. I, I went for a run a few weeks ago for the very first time, and I've always made fun of runners. It's like, you know, they invented bikes, right? Like <laughs> things with wheels. So I've always made fun of runners. And then I was, I don't know what came over me. I was like, I'm going to go for a run. So I go and I, I run a 5K like an idiot. And I'm laying in bed that night, completely sore. And guess what I'm doing? I'm texting my runner buddies, hey, what shoes do I need to buy? Uh, I'm doing research on like form and like, how, you know, how do you get better? And how do you, I'm like, I want to cultivate this thing. And it's not even a hobby yet. I haven't even got into it. I've already bought running shoes and I'm not even into this hobby yet. How crazy is that? Why am I that way? It's because God has put us on this earth to cultivate things. Now to say it plainly, sadly, often what gets our attention and our cultivation are those things to the detriment and the exclusion of the beautiful, more important gardens that God has placed us in. 
We're gonna talk about that in a minute, but the reality is you can't change that about you as a man. You are a cultivator. You're gonna cultivate. Unless you're wildly depressed or experiencing a dark night of the soul, you can't stop yourself from cultivating. The question is, what is it that you're cultivating, right? Not only was Adam placed in the garden to cultivate, he was also placed in the garden to keep it. Now, this word keep is vital. Uh, just a little anecdote that no one cares about but me. The name Burkhart comes from the keeper of the castle. Burke means uh, keeper. And then the heart of the, so it's like somewhere down the line, my ancestors were like fighting in castles and keeping the inner, you know, and here I am, this nerdy preacher, like how, my, how we've fallen as the Burkhart uh, family of origin. But here we are. So this word keep actually come, has that idea of being a protector, being a, a warrior fighter. It comes from the Hebrew word shema, which means to guard, to beware, to defend, to function like a bodyguard, to be a gatekeeper, that God placed Adam in the garden and said, work this garden and keep it, protect it, fight for it, make sure nothing evil gets inside. By the way, men, this is why on average, God made you physically stronger than the average woman. If, if the average man were to arm wrestle the average woman, the average man would beat the average woman. Now, there are some ladies you would dominate us, and there are some men you would be dominated, uh, but generally speaking, God made us strong. Why? Not to use our strength to harm or to unleash havoc and cursing and pain, but to use our physical presence, our physical strength, and all the other types of strength that he's given us for the blessing and the benefit and the protection of women in our lives. That's why he made us the way he made us. You don't need to be ashamed about that. That's a gift. Now, knowing that, knowing that Adam as the archetype was called to work and keep, cultivate and protect, notice how tragic Genesis 3 is. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, do you see the misinformation campaign playing out right now? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And here he goes again, but the serpent, serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's holding out on you. He knows that, He'll lose power and authority if you reach out and transgress. He's afraid of you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And here's the tragic line I want you to focus on. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Yes, Eve was deceived and she ate, but brothers, this is the tragedy Adam was not off in the garden like having a quiet time. He's not off like building a home or doing something beautiful. He's standing next to his wife while the enemy is in the gates and he's letting it happen. He lets an entire conversation go by between his bride and this enemy and then he becomes complicit in her sin instead of going, no, wait, God said this. We're to cultivate, I'm gonna protect, I'm gonna crush the head of the serpent. He doesn't do any of that. He's complicit, he abdicates, and he completely fails, not just as the first human, but as a man, he fails to cultivate and protect. And by the end of Genesis 3, 
there are three enemies that become entrenched on the earth as a result of his sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world, meaning the system structures, cultural aspects of our world that are opposed to God and his kingdom. The flesh, meaning not that part of you that you had hoped by the end of January would be less a part of you, you know, with all your New Year's resolutions. Um, the flesh, meaning that part of you that still desires to do evil and wrong, that is torn between following Jesus, loving Jesus, and also giving into your base, most animalistic desires, your sinful flesh. And then finally, the devil, not this little man with a red pitchfork wearing a you know, Valentine's Day onesie. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about real spiritual forces of evil that are unleashed on the world, that are irritating and agitating and energizing the world, the flesh, and rebellion against God and all that is good. So this is where the first watchman fails. He lets the enemy through the gates, lowers the drawbridge from within, and totally gives in. Luckily, the story doesn't stop there. There's something said in Genesis 3.15 that theologians have now since talked about as the first announcement of the gospel. In other words, this is the first glimmer of hope. It's the first announcement of the coming of Jesus into the world, and it's on chapter three of our Bibles. It says this, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And notice this line. This is the, the pointer towards Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's exactly what happens. Jesus, as the second great watchman, the New Testament refers to Jesus as the second Adam, right? This better Adam that comes along. Jesus exits heaven. He steps off of his throne of glory, takes off of his crown. He covers himself in humility by becoming a baby, fully God, but fully man. He lives a perfect life. And during his 40-day temptation in the wilderness, he resists the enemy at every turn. He's not like Adam. He's the better Adam. He responds back to the enemy and shuts it down every single time and is faithful. And then finally, this second Adam, this Jesus, this watchman, he goes to a cross, not for his own sin, but for your sin and my sin, to bear the weight and to experience the wrath of God on our behalf that we should have experienced. He absorbed it in fullness so that you and I could be protected and forgiven and blessed and loved. And he is now showing, this is what ultimate manhood looks like, sacrificially laying your life down for those that you love. And Jesus, he doesn't just die, but he rises again from the dead. And there is coming a day where he will return from heaven to this earth to fully bring his kingdom, to fully do what Adam was supposed to do, which was unleash beauty and goodness and blessing into the world. There's coming a day where he will wipe away every tear from every eye. He will dwell with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. And there won't be any, any crime or dysfunction or any sin or broken. All of it's out cancer, disease, all of it's out. And we will experience the blessing and protection of this watchman. That's good news, isn't it? That day's coming. So in light of that, C.S. Lewis says this, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The world is still kind of in the clutches of the enemy, as it were, 
The disinformation campaigns are out and both men and women are being invited to take part in a great campaign of sabotage against the enemy where we bring blessing and represent God in the world. How do we do this specifically as men? Let me just close by giving you a few things. Brothers, realize that you've been given a garden to protect. Doesn't mean women can't protect. You totally can. If you ever try to like steal a baby from a lady, which I've never tried for the record. (laughs) Just to caveat that, something I've never tried in my life, stealing a baby. Um, If you ever tried, you would be destroyed because she would go mama bear on you. So women can protect, but men, think about it with me and get a vision for this. God has given you a garden. He sovereignly placed you there. He's given you a physical place to live. He's given you specific giftings and wirings and talents and interests and abilities. He's given you your masculine strength. He's given you a job for many of us. He's given you friendships. He's given you a sphere of influence. For many of us, he's given you a wife or children. This is your garden. Think about where God has placed you, your roommates, your sphere of influence, whatever. That is your garden. God has gifted it to you, not to somebody else to cultivate. He's given you your garden for you to protect and to cultivate. And I just want to encourage you to stop waiting for some epic assignment that people are going to write books about. Your life is in the mundane, constantly, with a few significant moments here and there And then millions and millions of just mundane decisions that are made left and right. In fact, if your life is always exciting and always exhilarating and always like too much to handle, it's because you're a heroin addict and you need to get help, right? But for the rest of us, you live in mundanity. That's just where we find ourselves in. And there's this story in the Old Testament that sticks out to me as like a beautiful description of what men in our current cultural moment need so badly. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's listing out these heroic warriors that King David had as friends, and they're described as these mighty men of valor. And one of these mighty men of valor finds himself in the weirdest predicament. And I just think this is such a good vision for you and I as men. Let me just read this story to you. After him was Shema, son of Aji, the Herorite. The Philistines, those are in this story, the, the, the enemy. The Philistines had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. Do you know what lentils are, right? Like some of you are like, yeah, I know what lentils are because I eat you know, organic, non-GMO, blah, blah, blah. But for the rest of us, lentils are just, they're beans. This guy's in a field of beans. That's not great. Who cares about a field of beans? Like in their like statements we make about, oh, it's just a hill of beans, you know? Like this guy's on a hill of beans, the troops fled from, Philistine, from the Philistines, so all of his guys, they leave. So it's just him on this field and the beans. But look, Shema took his stand in the middle of the field, defended it, and struck down the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Why would this man risk his own life for a field of beans? Well, here's why. Because that field belonged to Israel, and he knew that God had given him the land to protect he knew it was God's land. And so here he is. He's like, I'm going to fight to the death to protect this field of beans. And I just want to say to you, some of you brothers, your, uh, your life feels like a mess right now. Your heart feels small and insignificant. And you're wondering, like, what's the point? What's, what is worth fighting with this? 
And I just want to say, man, it matters because it belongs to God. You've been placed there. Protect it. Fight for it. Number two, work hard to cultivate your garden. The image of masculinity is not just men with swords, it's men with swords and shovels. That's what I love about the story of Nehemiah so much, even though he was a hot mess. Nehemiah both protected with a sword and built something, and men need to do both. We need to protect and we need to cultivate. And I just want to ask you this, and I'm saying this often to my own shame with you, but often what happens in our lives is that men have more of a vision for our hobbies or for our career but we don't have a vision for cultivating our wife's heart. Or we don't have a vision for discipling our children. I got into cycling a couple of years ago, as many of you know, and you're so sick of hearing about it. And I would sit down with guys and go, help me get better. How do I grow in this? I want to figure out how to do this type of racing and this type, you know, I want to get faster and, you know, be able to go further and all these. And I'm getting like, I'm trying to build out a vision for my cycling. What would it look like if we as men had a vision for cultivating the friends in our lives? To cultivate our church, to cultivate this garden with intensity and with effort. Wouldn't that be beautiful if we as men realize that God has placed us here uniquely to protect and to cultivate something? So let your imagination run wild, your God-given imagination run wild with what that could look like, but you and I need it. I'm not trying to disparage your hobbies. Have your hobbies, but man, wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing if we could grow this next year as men to just have a, a vision to give our best effort to the things in the world that ultimately matter the most? Number three, be watchful. First Peter says this, First Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Friends, you've got a real enemy. He doesn't sleep 24-7. He's laying siege to your garden, to the kingdom of God, to all that is good in the world. He does not want you to succeed. He hates your guts. He hates the women in your life. He hates the children in your life. He doesn't want anything good for humanity. He only wants to kill and steal and destroy. What would it look like if you and I grew a sense of watchfulness about where the enemy might be attacking What would it look like to get a little bit more creative and aware of where he's waging war on us, maybe through our phones and how they disorder our loves or distract us, or maybe through places in our soul where we're vulnerable and we need to shore up, or maybe ways that the enemy would love to disrupt our singleness and the ways that we walk out faithful sexual fidelity to Jesus and the historic teachings of Christianity, or maybe in our marriages or our parenting. Like, what would it look like to just watch, okay, the enemy's trying to break in. How can I defend? How can I guard? How can I protect? And then finally, stand firm in the faith. Don't hear this as like, rah, 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 let's go get them. No, it's not stand firm in your strength. It's not stand firm in your brilliance. It's not stand firm in all the things that you bring to the table because quite frankly, often we don't bring much to the table. It's stand firm in the faith. And that in the faith is deep. It's broad. It's intense. It's saying stand firm in doctrinal fidelity. The faith is shorthand for a body of Christian belief. Stand firm in good theology. The enemy is wanting your theology, your doctrine, your understanding of God, your understanding of Scripture to go from ordered to chaos, 
Don't let it go to chaos. Stand firm in the faith and guard good doctrine. It's not just doctrine, though. It's formation. To stand firm in the faith, it's to stand firm in Jesus Christ and what he's done in his death and resurrection on our behalf. It's to stand firm in a way that it's forming us. It's, it's creating a whole new way of seeing the world that isn't how America tells us to see the world or how your dad said or culture says or whatever. It's seeing the world through the lens of Jesus and the kingdom and building your whole life on that. Stand firm in the faith. It's experiential, meaning it's not just about receiving truth in your brains, but walking with a person who is the truth, knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus, growing in intimacy and love and affection for Jesus, and being filled with the Spirit to carry out why the Father has placed you here in the first place. So some of us need help here. In fact, I would say all of us need help here, but we're not being called up to rah, rah, rah in our own strength. We're being invited to stand in this faith that God our Father is offering to you and he's offering to me. Would you stand with me? I know that there's a lot here that's applicable to men and women. And even the questions that I wanna lead you through now as we come to the table are applicable to men and women. So ladies, I invite you to process where the spirit might be directing you in this moment. Or maybe what you want to do is pray for your brothers in the room right now. It's up to you. But brothers, I just want to ask you to consider a few questions with me. Maybe just close your eyes and think about your life. Where is the Spirit of God inviting you to stand firm in the faith? What needs to be shored up and strengthened in your life? Is it your doctrine? Do you need to pull in some brothers and figure out how to grow theologically? so that you can stay anchored in what's real and true? Is it your formation? Do you believe all the right stuff, but your life is disconnected from it? You need just help to know how to form your life around the way of Jesus? Is it experiential? Maybe it feels like you're just plodding along, but your heart feels dead to God, and you, just, you need prayer today for God to awaken desire and love for him again. Are there areas in your life where you've fallen asleep and God is now inviting you into watchfulness? Maybe you've forgotten about the garden that he's entrusted to you. Have you been neglecting the role of cultivating and working and building? Where is the enemy currently laying siege to an area in your heart or life that needs to be addressed? Where is the enemy laying siege to your heart? Maybe it's through struggles with pornography, isolation, bitterness, resentment. That's kind of the underlying emotion that you experience, rage. Where is it that the enemy might be breaking in and today you need the grace of your father to help you? And that leads me to the final question I want you to process. What do you need from your father today? And what do you need from your brothers and your sisters today? Maybe today for you is um, reaching out to your community group and asking for help. That's why he gave us the church. Maybe it's having a conversation if you're married with your spouse. Maybe it's syncing up with another brother or in your discipleship group and saying, hey, this is what I need from you. But don't bypass that with... First, what do you need from your father today? I want to invite you to look up here 
and remember your Father's heart for you. You were so loved and are and so valuable that on your worst day, when you were dead in sin, he sent his son for you. His body was broken. His his blood was shed because he loved you. He wanted to protect you. He wanted to forgive you. He wanted you to be with him. So don't rush out of here. Come to your father through this meal and receive from him today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited today to the bread, to the wine. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we love you like crazy. Please just be around, ask questions, ask us why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. And it's, it's, it really is an honor to, to be in the room with you. So thanks for putting up with us. You're always invited. But don't come and take this meal. This is a meal of faith. This is a meal for people who have trusted in Jesus and demonstrated that through the act of baptism. So followers of Jesus, let's go ahead and come to this meal Get in groups as you feel led or appropriate. If you need to just sit by yourself, that's okay too. And process and receive from your father today. He is, he really loves you. He's, he's proud of you because your identity is in Jesus. He's not trying to demand stuff of you. He loves you. So come and receive his love today. Amen. You're invited to come.